This is China and the World, hosted by Asia Society Switzerland. Hello and welcome to the second episode of China and the World, where we are looking at the evolving role of China in different regions and countries. I'm your host, Nicolo Singer. In our first episode, we discussed Indonesia and Malaysia. And today, we're moving on from maritime Southeast Asia to mainland Southeast Asia. And we will be talking about Cambodia, China's closest ally in Southeast Asia and how this came to be, about Laos and its balancing act between China, Vietnam, the US and other powers, and about the appeal of China's deep pockets and uh, non-interference norms to the governments in both these countries. It is in mainland Southeast Asia, namely in the Mekong countries of Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam, where China's cultural and political influence can really be felt most acutely compared to the more distant maritime nations of Southeast Asia. It is also where China has caused the deepest fears, as well as found its dearest friends, as Sebastian Strangio puts it in his book, In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. China's more recent economic integration and infrastructure development efforts have drawn the countries of the Mekong region closer to China than ever before. The region is one of the main targets of the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI for short, with which China wants to improve connectivity between its southern provinces and Southeast Asia. One of the key railway lines well underway is from Kunming in China to Vientiane, the capital of Laos, where it will eventually be connected to Thailand. Here's Sebastian Strangio. In the mainland parts of Southeast Asia, Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, new infrastructure networks have broken through what was once a nearly impermeable barrier of mountains and forests, which, you know, in pre-colonial times kept the various Chinese states and dynasties largely at bay. But today, new networks of highways, rail lines, and special economic zones have opened the mainland region to a transformative southward sweep of Chinese investment and immigration. China's damming of the upper reaches of the Mekong River has also given Chinese dam engineers a huge amount of power over the, the, the southward flow of a life-giving resource upon which tens of millions of people in the mainland Southeast Asian countries rely. Sebastian Strangio is a journalist and author, and he currently works as the Southeast Asia editor at The Diplomat. He first became interested in China's evolving role in Southeast Asia when he lived in Cambodia a few years back. So I first came in contact with the story of China's growing power as a journalist in Cambodia. I traveled to the country in 2008 to take up a job at a local English language paper, and, and I ended up spending eight years in Cambodia, you know, living and reporting there. And during those eight years, I saw a remarkable growth in the visible Chinese investment presence in the country. I had, a, you know, really a unique, uniquely sort of um, firsthand perspective on, on how China was changing the region. During the eight years I was in the country, China became Cambodia's number one trade partner, its number one source of foreign direct investment, and its leading source of tourist arrivals. And this, as I said, this was visible everywhere we went in the country, from the Chinese-funded bridges that were spanning Cambodia's rivers to the Chinese-funded highways that were opening up remote tracts of the country, to indeed the casino tourism that seized hold of the coastal town of Sihanoukville. There was also a political and ideological component to this. I mean, most people here will remember that Cambodia in the early 1990s, at the end of the Cold War, was the subject of one of the great post-Cold War nation-building efforts, which sought to end the country's you know, endemic civil wars and, and, and put the country on, on the path toward democratic governance. Um, and this really you know, 
epitomized the optimism that came in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, that, that liberal values would henceforth spread throughout the world. Cambodia really became a fixation, uh, more really um, reflected this optimism. Flash forward 30 years, and what we see is Prime Minister Hun Sen, you know, closing down what remains of democratic institutions imported at that time uh, in the early 90s, and doing so with very strong backing from China. So, you know, in some ways, China has sort of helped Hun Sen abrogate this democracy building project that Western countries invested so much money in at the end of the Cold War. After French rule, Japanese occupation, and US bombing during the Vietnam War, Cambodia suffered one of the worst genocides by the communist Khmer Rouge in the late 1970s, followed by the Vietnamese invasion. Since 1985, Cambodia has been under the rule of Hun Sen, one of the world's longest-serving prime ministers. During Hun Sen's tenure, Cambodia has shifted from being a sworn enemy of China to one of its closest allies. Here's Sebastian Strangio again, in a conversation with my colleague Denise Staubli, recorded in November 2020, on how this remarkable change came about. Cambodia presents an extreme case compared to other ASEAN countries. When Prime Minister Hun Sen came to power in 1985, he described China as the root of everything that was evil, as you describe in your book. Today, Cambodia is China's closest partner. Could you give a bit more historical background information on how this transformation occurred? One of the most remarkable things about this shift, this really this swing from absolute hostility to this almost absolute sort of fealty toward China, at least on the surface, is that it has taken place under a single leader. In the 1980s, Cambodia was on the wrong end of a very cynical Cold War, you know, example of Cold War real politic. In 1979, the current Cambodian government, or the current Cambodian ruling party, participated in the overthrow, the Vietnamese military overthrow of the Khmer Rouge regime, which devastated the country in, and led to hundreds of thousands of, of, of deaths in the mid-1970s. But immediately, because the new regime that was established was backed by Vietnam and the Soviet Union, China and the United States and the members of ASEAN isolated Cambodia and embargoed it and basically cut it off from the outside world. And China continued to support the Khmer Rouge as it had done while it was in power um, after it was overthrown. And so Khmer Rouge guerrillas used Chinese uniforms and radio sets um, and fought with Chinese weapons. And, uh, you know, they also had diplomatic backing from the US and, of course, you know, uh, support from Thailand and other members of ASEAN as well. So in the 1980s, the current Cambodian ruling party, um, which then had a different name, viewed China as sort of its ideological and strategic enemy. All of that changes at the end of the Cold War. Cambodia opens to the world, the UN comes, uh, and with the coming of the UN comes this sort of project, which seeks to turn Cambodia into a democracy. There was a real sense, I think, amongst a lot of the Western governments that supported this, this, um, the peace treaty of 1991 and the UN mission that followed and the reconstruction of the country that followed in the years after that, that they owed Cambodia for country having been subject to such devastation during the Cold War. But of course, Prime Minister Hun Sen, who was in charge, as you say, he was imposed, um, he was uh, appointed Prime Minister in 1985 and has basically held that position ever since. This democracy building effort posed a huge threat. We've seen Hun Sen sort of define his interests in opposition to this project of democratization. And of course, China's growth and emergence as a powerful patron has given him an alternative, not so much a model of development, but freedom from a model of development that he never really, had never really accepted to begin with. If you want to understand why Cambodia has become the closest nation to 
China and Southeast Asia, the closest thing China has really to an ally and a friend. One reason is this, this Western democracy building effort. There are also deeper historical antecedents, which I think are important to mention. Historically, Cambodia was a very, um, had an accommodative view toward Chinese power. It does not share a border with China. The nations or the kingdoms, the powers that pose the greatest threat to Cambodia historically, the Cambodian kingdom, were not China, but were Vietnam and Kingdom of Siam to the West, and particularly Vietnam, um, which, you know, through its long march southward, slowly absorbed what were once Khmer, ethnic Khmer-dominated regions of the Mekong Delta and so, what is today southern Vietnam. And this is something that Cambodians still feel incredibly aggrieved about. You don't have to scratch very deeply to find the most intense anti-Vietnamese sentiment in Cambodia that exists almost irrespective of Vietnam's actual influence and actions. And so historically, you know, Cambodia has been a friendly place for ethnic Chinese immigrants. They've been coming to the country since you know, at least the time of Angkor Wat. And, you know, if you read the accounts of Western scholars and, and travelers to Cambodia in the early part of the 20th century, you know, they all note that the Chinese are very, were, were, you know, are generally, the Cambodians treat the Chinese with a great deal of friendliness. And so this is the other reason, you know, Cambodia has historically feared the nations to either side, not China. And so there's sort of a, there's a longer pattern at play here as well. But those are the two things that I would say explain the current government's closeness to China. So Cambodia has been sort of in a sandwich position between Thailand and Vietnam and under the influence of other foreign powers like the US and later the UN mission. So under these circumstances, it was a good option for Cambodia to choose China as its patron. Could we dive a bit deeper into the sectors China supports in Cambodia and how Cambodia can profit from the Chinese inflow of capital? Chinese investment is present in just about every sector of the economy. Under the Belt and Road Initiative, China has, has pledged hundreds of millions of dollars to Cambodia for the construction of bridges and highways and, and hard infrastructure. Uh, we've seen a lot of Chinese expatriate business people enter the country and start small businesses, everything from small Chinese restaurants in the capital Phnom Penh to tourist agencies and real estate firms and banks. It's really a full spectrum economic engagement. Plantation agriculture is another thing that we've seen a lot of. The same is true of Laos, of course. You know, it really is full spectrum. The danger in Cambodia, I think, is that I like to liken the, the flow of Chinese money to a flood in the sense that, you know, if you have the right infrastructure in place, then, then water can be channeled and harnessed in the way that it was uh, in the Kingdom of Angkor, you know, when the great hydraulic systems of Angkor Wat and, and other fantastic monuments were, were, put, were put to, you know, channeled water into productive agricultural production, which a lot of historians believe is one of the reasons that Angkor was able to develop so much wealth, is that it had this command of water. I'm digressing a little bit, but basically I think Cambodia really lacks that today. So if we, if we liken the flood of Chinese money to flood, there's really nothing stopping it sort of washing away what's already there. And instead of being used to productive ends, it's, it's you know, very often had destructive impacts. And one problem in Cambodia and in Laos, you know, as we can discuss further on, is that there are very weak regulations. And those regulations that are in existence are very weakly enforced. And so there's not much control over this, this, this inflow of capital. There's a lot of black money from the Chinese mainland. There's a lot of organized crime, of which the casino economy in Sihanoukville is probably the best example. You know, I, I understand that the Chinese embassy in Phnom Penh has been very frustrated with the Cambodian government's inability to sort of get hold of this and control this, you know, the, the most negative impacts of Chinese investment. Of course, what we're seeing now is the appearance of something that I mentioned before is historically unusual. 
anti-Chinese sentiment amongst the Cambodian population. You know, uh, and, and that's something that perhaps will be curbed now that COVID-19 and ga- there's an ga- online gambling ban that's been introduced. And these, both of these things have sort of resulted in a reported exodus of Chinese nationals from Cambodia uh, at the end of last year and early this year. But th- the way that Chinese investments have proceeded in Cambodia, um, you know, indicates just how little control both Beijing and Phnom Penh have had over them. Cambodia's relation to China has also begun to attract attention in Washington. Recently, there were news about China expanding the Reem naval base in Cambodia, a facility formerly supported by the US. What concerns are there about some of China's activities on Cambodia's coasts? Is there a risk that Cambodia will become tangled up in tensions between China and the US? There are already signs that that's happening. I mean, this whole report and fear of a Chinese military presence is is in many ways, and so I think an expression of that fear and concern. We don't really have any hard proof at the moment for what the Chinese Navy or military is planning in Cambodia or what the Cambodian government might have agreed. Last year, the Wall Street Journal reported that a secret agreement had been signed, giving China access for a period of 30 years to Riem Naval Base. But there was never any smoking gun evidence that, that this agreement had been signed. And so the, a lot of this is sort of speculation. The destruction of US-supported facilities at the Reem Naval Base has only deepened the suspicion about what might be happening there. The Cambodians claim that these facilities are being relocated, hence the demolitions. But the fact that they haven't sort of consulted with the US embassy or the US government about these things, at least not that we know of, has led to a great deal of concern. And I think what we see in, in Washington right now is you see Cambodia's old status as a democracy-building project is coming into alignment with Cambodia's alignment with China. Cambodia is being viewed in negative terms, both for its authoritarian turn under Hun Sen, as well as cozying up to China. And these two are kind of inseparable now. Uh, Whereas my argument has always been that, you know, it was in large part Western pressure that incentivized Hun Sen to embrace China to the extent that he has. And so, you know, what we've seen is increased concern and pressure in Washington, you know, uh, sanctions on key Cambodian officials and, and, and sort of more vocal support for the Cambodian opposition, alongside attempts by the current U.S. ambassador in Phnom Penh to begin rebuilding relations. And, and there has been some progress on that front. And uh, yeah, but uh, there, there is also, I should mention, an, another fear about a Chinese, a potential Chinese military presence in a different part of the Cambodian coast within a large-scale tourism project that has been, that I actually reported on back in 2008 when the agreement was signed, I remember. There is fear that an international airport and deep water port that are part of this project could be used for military purposes. Again, we don't really know. There's a lot of speculation about the shape of the runway, the size of the runway, the, the, the size of the turning bays, and comparison to other Chinese military airfields. The lack of transparency on the part of the Cambodians has also raised some concerns. But, you know, Hun Sen's, uh, you know, embrace of Chinese power has really run the risk of, of leading his country into an unhealthy dependence upon it and potentially put Cambodia once again between the mortar and the pestle of superpower conflict. Let's now turn to Laos, which shares some similarities with Cambodia, but is still a quite different case when it comes to relationships with China. Laos has a long history of interference from its neighbors, as well as France, Japan, and other great powers, who all intervened at some point or another. As Cambodia, during the Cold War, Laos was involved in the war in neighboring Vietnam. Vietnamese communist insurgents roamed eastern Laos, and the Ho Chi Minh Trail running from North Vietnam all the way through Laos and Cambodia to South Vietnam was used as a military supply route by communist-led North Vietnam for their supporters in the South. And while the turn to China was not as pronounced as in Cambodia, Laos did develop closer and closer relationships with its northern neighbor in the last years. 
Here's Sebastian Strangio again in conversation with my colleague Denise. Unlike Cambodia, Laos is close to Vietnam and is seeking to maintain an active balance of dependencies between China, Vietnam, the US and other powers. Could you give us a bit more historical background information on China's engagement in Laos and the role of Vietnam? Sure. Well, historically, you know, the Lao Communist Party, the Lao People's Revolutionary Party, has been close to the Vietnamese Communist Party. I mean, these two parties fought alongside one another during their respective wars of liberation, um, as they refer to them. And there was sort of this almost umbilical relationship between the two. Um, China provided support for the Lao revolutionary cause as well, but it didn't have the quite the same sort of intimate relationship with Laos as Vietnam did. But over time, as China's sort of power has grown, its economy has grown, you know, Laos, which borders China, has been drawn more and more into its orbit. Laos remains a contested space. It is not, you know, purely a Chinese satellite. But, uh, you know, Vietnam retains a lot of influence, especially at the subnational level. But because Laos was very close to Vietnam, it mirrored, at least for, to a certain extent, Vietnam's anti-Chinese politics, uh, anti-Chinese policies of the 1980s, which, of course, were also mirrored by Hun Sen in Cambodia, who was also, at the time, very close to Vietnam. And so this led to sort of crackdowns on the ethnic Chinese population of Laos and the flight of many of them from the country in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And it led to sort of a distancing of relations with China. But in, you know, whereas Vietnam and China, you know, there was a very serious break between the two powers through the 1980s. You know, the 1980 constitution, Vietnam's 1980 constitution, hostility to China is actually in the preamble of the constitution. It was elevated into a constitutional principle. So, so you know, so central was it to um, the politics of the time. Um, in Laos, the break was never as total. And so as soon as the Cold War nears its end, you start to have increasing ties, you know, state visits and so forth. The Lao communist leader, Kaesong Pombihan, was the first foreign leader to visit Beijing after the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989 and won a lot of support there by praising China's handling of the, you know, the, the student protests. So, uh, you know, from that point onwards, we see sort of a steady increase of Chinese influence in Laos to the extent that it rivals um, Vietnam. It's a sort of an alternative, you know, source of gravity in the relationship. So that's sort of the, the overview of the last few decades. The Chinese influence can especially be felt in the north of Laos. Could you briefly summarize what sectors China supports in Laos and how Laos seeks to benefit from Chinese investments? Well, you know, as I, as I mentioned with Cambodia, it really covers every sphere of the economy. Plantation agriculture is a huge thing in Laos. Hydropower, you know, Belt and Road Initiative projects, including the high-speed rail line, which is currently under construction through the north of the country, linking up to China's high-speed rail network. You know, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, Lao, Laos's ruling elites are, you know, interested above all in sort of maintaining their hold on power, as is the case in Cambodia. And I think that you know, they view relations with China as, you know, they see China as a very handy source of the, you know, the financing, the no-string support that can help undergird their control of the country, can sort of either to some extent deliver the economic growth upon which their legitimacy relies, and also, you know, provide grist for the patronage mill. Laos is a very corrupt country, and a lot of the Chinese enterprises and business people that work in Laos are, you know, are willing to work within that system and in those ways. And, and as in Cambodia, we've seen, you know, a lot of organized crime enter Laos, a lot of black money, 
a lot of fugitives from the law in China. In the Golden Triangle, there's this remarkable special economic zone that's been set up, again, focused on gambling, that's run basically as an independent thief by a Chinese businessman who used to run casinos in Macau. And, you know, this is somewhere where, you know, they have their own security forces. And, you know, the Lao government takes sort of a a rent for this, this zone, but doesn't really have any direct control over it. I think that the Lao governments views China as a, as a convenient way of developing outlying regions of the country, which historically the Lao government, the Lao state, um, has had a very loose hold over. And so these various functions are served. And I think, you know, after, after the leadership transition in 2016, it was about curbing the overt negative influences of a lot of these Chinese projects, rather than sort of a hostility or turn against China per se. I think, you know, they have every reason to try and, you know, get take money from everybody. You know, I think a balance of dependencies is more healthy than, you know, than reliance on one patron alone. And I think one advantage the Lao government has that the Cambodian government doesn't is that in Cambodia, Cambodia became an international cause in the early 90s, a democracy project, as I mentioned, and, and this, this, this human rights story in a way that Laos never really did. So the Lao government has had a little bit more freedom in that respect. Sebastian briefly mentioned the Golden Triangle, and for those of you who don't know, that is the area where the borders of Laos, Thailand, and Myanmar meet. When we discuss Chinese foreign investments, and especially the Belt and Road Initiative, we often hear the term debt trap diplomacy. This is the idea that a country gets so heavily indebted to China, which for example offers to finance infrastructure through a loan, that China can then exert political influence in that country. Most experts agree that this does not actually happen a lot. But in Laos, for all its efforts to balance foreign influence, debt to China has become an issue in recent years. Back to Denise and Sebastian. Unlike Cambodia, it seems that Laos is one of the ASEAN countries risking significant debt distress as a result of BRI loans from China. How does Chinese investment affect the debt situation in Laos? And how does China use a potential need for debt restructuring to exert additional influence? As you say, Laos is the one country in Southeast Asia where debt really has been a problem, and Chinese debt particularly, and where the charge of debt trap diplomacy might have some relevance. Due to COVID, the Lao government has been pushed into a foreign exchange crisis. They basically don't have enough money left in the national coffers to, to service the country's debt. And as a result, a Chinese state-owned firm was able to gain a majority control a majority share of control over the nation's national power grid. You know, I don't know that China's purposefully employed debt for these reasons. But I think that there is, you know, Laos is a very small country and has taken on like considerable amounts of debt relative to GDP from China. And and all it required was, you know, a, an external shock like COVID-19 to push the country into a great deal of trouble. I'm not currently aware of China approaching Laos with, you know, a debt sort of restructuring plan or anything of that sort. But I think that the Chinese government is becoming more and more aware of the need to sort of counter this idea of debt trap diplomacy. And indeed, you know, a lot of the Chinese banks that are lending this money out to fund the BRI are, you know, they also want to get their money back. They have their own enterprises and institutions that have their own financial interests, even, you know, apart from the serving in some senses as as arms of the state. And so, I think there's an increasing sense in which China will move toward addressing the debt question, both for political reasons and also for economic reasons. The attitudes towards China from Laos and Cambodia also affect ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, where especially Cambodia's China-friendly stance has sometimes caused irritation. Here's Denise and Sebastian for one last time. What role do Cambodia and Laos play within ASEAN? 
Recently, the former Singaporean diplomat Bilahari Kazikan said that Southeast Asian countries needed to consider revoking ASEAN membership for Cambodia and Laos. What is your take on this? Yeah, I mean, there's been a few occasions on which Cambodia has sort of blocked strong language from being inserted into ASEAN statements. And, you know, it's, it's true that Cambodia has, to some extent, played a role as it used its veto within ASEAN to sort of block initiatives that are critical or hostile, you know, toward China. I think it's unlikely that Cambodia would be kicked out of ASEAN. I think that things would have to get a lot worse. Cambodia interceded in 2012 at an ASEAN meeting to block a joint communique that referenced the South China Sea disputes. And I think it, you know, weathered a lot of criticism for that. Laos has also said supportive things, you know, toward China, but has been a little less overt about it. Again, it sort of has to balance its old allegiance with Vietnam in that regard. But no, I, I think that, you know, Bilahari Kasakan's comments, he's, he's known for sort of stirring the pot and provoking controversy. I think it was a really interesting thing for him to put on the table to sort of say that, you know, ASEAN is not set in stone. And, and if, if its survival is threatened, this could be a contingency that it could choose to exercise. Uh, I think that it's very unlikely to happen, though. I wrote an article arguing that, you know, when ASEAN expanded at the end of the Cold War, it came to be almost synonymous with Southeast Asia in the sense that every recognized nation of Southeast Asia, except Timor-Leste, which at the time obviously didn't exist as an independent state, was now encompassed within ASEAN. I think that to kick out two member states could challenge that underlying Southeast Asian identity that ASEAN is trying to promote. So I think things would have to get a lot worse before the other ASEAN member states would, especially countries like Thailand and Myanmar that don't have direct interests in the South China Sea, to take such a strong action. And that's it for today. If you're interested in learning more about China's rapid re-emergence as a regional superpower in Southeast Asia, I can highly recommend Sebastian Strangio's book, In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century, where he examines all ASEAN member countries, except Brunei, and their relationship to China. And by the way, if you're interested in learning more about water and dam-related issues in the Mekong Basin, you can contact my colleague Denise Stavli, whom you've heard speaking to Sebastian before. She used to live in Laos, where she worked for the Mekong River Commission. And here's my recommendation for today. Station 11, a novel by Emily St. John Mandel. It's a novel about a pandemic, but not this current one we all live through. And it's also surprisingly optimistic and funny and, and weird. And it really drew me in, unlike any other book in recent times. Thank you so much for listening today. In our next show, we'll move on to Africa, where China has played an increasingly active role since the 1990s. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And do leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. This episode of China and the World was produced and edited by Denise Stavli. My name is Nico Luchsinger. See you soon. Follow Asia Society Switzerland on social media and visit our website for more information on upcoming events.